Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the Hip Hop Saved My Life podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's sit back because it's time for the podcast. Yes, and welcome to a bonus episode of Hip Hop Saved My Life. Uh, basically, the publisher have asked me to find ways of promoting the book, so I thought I would put a chapter of it as a little bonus ep on this uh, podcast. And when I say I thought, I mean the publisher suggested, and I agreed. So, um, this is a segment from my book, Straight Outta Crawley, uh, starting now. It's very difficult to delineate this uh, because it's my voice now and the book is read by me. But it's starting in three, two, one. Chapter eight. It's bigger than hip hop. I love hip hop so much. It's helped form my identity. See me through years of being down and out and has meant that my dress sense is a bit middle-aged dad trying to be cool. I first got into hip hop when I was a kid and have never stopped listening to it, despite my wife's insistence that I should have grown out of it by now. My one sadness in my marriage is that I haven't managed to convert Lisa to hip-hop. She hates it. Hates it. It would have been easier to convert her to Islam, which I am trying next as a test. I, I just want to point out that I'm not even a Muslim. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just not one. What a fucking minefield. Just this morning, I was listening to Jurassic 5 in the kitchen while making breakfast. As soon as I stopped it, she threw her head back and said, thank God for that. That was Jurassic 5, like one of the most inoffensive rap groups around. I wouldn't mind so much if she had a taste in music. I'm not saying she has bad taste, just that she barely has an opinion on it. She likes music she vaguely remembers as the background noise to her doing something else. She never actively listens to it, which means whenever she has control of the car stereo, we have indie music on because that's what was playing at that party when she got off with some bloke round the back of the scout hut. Until recently, my greatest success was taking her to a Roots gig and her saying she enjoyed it. But she hasn't sought out any more of their music. But then I made a breakthrough. Not a great one, but a breakthrough nevertheless. I'm an inconsiderate man. Not deliberately, I just don't have a particularly high regard for birthdays and anniversaries. I wouldn't care if everyone forgot my birthday, but I have to remember that not everybody else feels like that. This means that much of my life is spent apologising to people for not remembering their latest milestone, and Lisa definitely bears the brunt of this. The advantage, for me at least, is that I've managed to lower expectations to such a point that if she receives a card, it's an achievement. This year, for our anniversary, I remembered that she had mentioned wanting to see the musical Hamilton, and I booked up surprise tickets. Next level husbanding. I told her we were going out, didn't tell her where, and when we arrived at the theatre, she revealed she assumed it would be dinner and hadn't eaten anything all day. Because I'm Ramesh Ranganathan, and I don't think things through properly. 
I didn't hold out much hope for Hamilton. I'd been told by loads of people I'd love it because it was a musical with a hip-hop soundtrack. That should have been right up my street, but I had visions of some dreadful appropriation of hip-hop that would mean me spending the evening with loads of people talking about how amazing something was that took a massive dump all over my favourite thing. It was actually incredible. This is not the place for a Hamilton review, but the show was unbelievable, and Lisa loved it. She even started to listen to the soundtrack in the car. My wife, actively seeking out rap music. My mind was blown. She still listens to it now, and I'm sick to death of it. My early hip-hop obsession had a major impact on my lifestyle. It encouraged me to dress like an imbecile. Back in my late teens, I had some very special outfits. Me and the only other two guys at school who liked hip-hop started wearing baggy jeans, headgear, and thinking we were in Brooklyn. It was really bad. What made it worse was that we didn't know what we were doing. We would wear our interpretation of the look, like Asian knockoffs of an American product. In fact, I remember there was a gang of black lads from the other side of Crawley who would always laugh their tits off when they saw us doing an impression of them. When I look back on it, it was hugely embarrassing. But at the time, I thought I was a proper G. When I was in sixth form, there was a girl I really liked called Natasha. I remember writing a rap for her. One of the lines went, Natasha, you know you're not a hoe or a bitch and I want to let you know you turn me on like a switch. I imagine Natasha showed the rap to her friend saying, isn't this romantic? Ramesh says I'm neither a hoe nor a bitch and that I really turn him on, despite the fact he's a masturbating virgin. I thought she was gorgeous, but I never thought I'd have a shot with her. Until one day, we're in the common room and she started chatting and flirting with me. Oh my days, I couldn't believe it. I was throwing down all sorts of gags and chat and she was laughing and playing with her hair. I was smashing the combo. Then she told me she was going to the base nightclub in East Grinstead later and asked if I wanted to go too. Holy shit, mate. Yes, I bloody do. The base was the only nightclub in the area worth going to, and it was barely that. Everyone used to go there on a Friday and Saturday, and there'd be appearances from dance music stars that just started to go on the wane. I remember seeing Baby D there, but by the time I saw her, she was probably had three babies, D. I was worried about making the right impression when I was out, but I knew exactly what to do. Go full rude boy. I wore baggy jeans, smart shoes, because you couldn't get in with trainers, a baggy red shirt and a bloody waistcoat. I looked like Aladdin. The most amazing thing about that outfit is I still haven't told you the worst part of it yet. I wore a bright red bandana. What an absolute arsehole. I thought I looked like Tupac. What I actually looked like was Tupac just after he'd auditioned to be in Panto. When I got to the club, Natasha took one look at me and headed off to another part of the venue. I was so deluded I decided this was part of a game to play it cool, so I decided not to chase. That meant I spent my night alone in a nightclub. I left without seeing Natasha, went to get a kebab, and a drunk girl told me that she thought it was brave to wear a handkerchief out. After that, Natasha and I didn't really talk again. Last I heard, she'd become a hoe and a bitch, and very rarely, if ever, turned people on like a switch. I was, and am pathetic with women. I don't mean as many comedians pretend on stage that I'm shy and retiring, a nice guy just waiting for the right girl. I have never, ever, ever pulled a girl at a nightclub. And I've never had a one-night stand. And let me tell you why. I'm unattractive. And I'm not even the right unattractive. It's a lazy eye. Attractiveness is directly proportional to how symmetrical your face is. I can't even look in the same direction to tell you if something's symmetrical. Combine that with the physique of a man who's method acting as a walrus, and you really don't have much hope. I realise this all sounds like bollocks because I found love, 
My wife is amazing and I'm very lucky, but she got to know me and we fell in love. If I'd approached Lisa in a nightclub or bar, she wouldn't have given me the time of day. She denies it now because social convention dictates she has to. It wasn't even like I had the chat when I did speak to a girl. I was 25 and had just split up with a girl I'd been seeing. A girl who, it transpires, had been cheating on me left, right and centre. I was trying to get back on the horse and a friend of mine took me out, then spent the evening forcing me to approach women. We were at Icon, a club in Crawley, which had a weird setup with an American diner in the corner. Two girls were having something to eat and my mate decided they were going to be our chat-up targets. After much convincing, I agreed to approach them, but had no idea what I was going to say. I walked up to one of the girls, having made up my mind that I wasn't going to chat her up, would simply engage her in polite conversation and see what happened. I thought I would just make an observation, but I didn't want it to be too cheesy, so I wouldn't say, you're fit, although that probably would have worked better than what I actually said. I noticed she was eating a hot dog and said, looks like you're enjoying that. How I didn't realise that would sound like I was suggesting she enjoyed blowjobs is beyond me. She looked disgusted and turned away from me to talk to her friend, who was being spoken to by my mate, who couldn't believe I'd already managed to piss off my girl. When I told him what had happened, after he'd finished laughing, he agreed not to pressure me into harassing any more girls. And I believe that's how I managed to get through my single years, avoiding arrest. Another time, I'd just bought a white trench coat and thought I looked the dogs. I was in Brannigan's in Crawley, a regular Tuesday hangout for a while. Crawley is popular with lots of airport workers from Gatwick, so loads of the bars ran and still run a hosty night on Tuesdays, which means that Tuesday nights in Crawley look like Friday nights. So me and my crew would go out on Tuesday, Friday and Saturday every week without fail for five or six years. And I did not pull once. You have to accept there was an issue there. I was dancing in Brannigan's and there was a girl I thought was very attractive. I decided to try the traditional method of dancing behind a girl and seeing if she tells you to fuck off when she notices you. And it worked. She glanced back and carried on dancing and I moved in closer and gave my mates a thumbs up. About half an hour of this mating ritual continued until I thought it might be time to step it up a gear. I hadn't even spoken to her yet. I started to move in a bit closer to say hello. As I did this, she turned and two things became apparent. First, she hadn't noticed me before. Second, now that she had, she was appalled. She looked at me in the same way that you might look at someone ugly who has been dancing behind you without you noticing for about half an hour, wearing a creepy white trench coat. And as I'd given the big thumbs up to my mates, they all witnessed what had followed. I was mortified. I envy people who now have the internet to help them date, and I'm aware that makes me sound about 100. It seems to make things a lot less awkward. You can arrange dates without first having to do some sort of approach play. I'm terrible at reading signals. I could almost guarantee that every girl I approached was just trying to have a nice night with her friends without some goggle-eyed freak suggesting they're fellating a hot dog. I get that which is why I would have loved to have dating websites taking away all of the horror and allowing me to meet people based on interests and personality. I'm speaking from a position of complete ignorance here. Internet dating is a nightmare according to the people I know who have done it, but it has got to be better than approaching someone cold, hasn't it? In fact, I think that should be now made illegal. Decriminalise marijuana and criminalise chirpsing. The closest I've come to being on the receiving end of unwanted advances is being at the train station or the shops and seeing someone I know. The station is probably the worst because there's no escape and usually a pretty high chance that the person will then be on the same train as you, which means you have to sit next to them and have a dreadful conversation. 
I usually have a new album lined up to listen to on the train, and I'm really keen to tuck into it, so my journey is ruined. Then, as you part ways, you say something like, we should meet up properly. But as neither of you has bothered to meet up before this random encounter, it's probably a good sign that you shouldn't be friends. I'm pretty sure this awkwardness is felt on both sides, which is why I now try to avoid these situations at all costs. I was at a tube station recently, and somebody I went to school with was on the platform. I saw him, he saw me. That should have been it. We're not friends anymore. We're strangers who happen to go to the same school. It was at least 20 years since I'd seen the guy, and that's enough time for stranger status to have grown back. This prick didn't think that, so he came over and started talking. And then what do you say? How's it going? You think we'll have anything in common as adults? Could you please pretend to give a shit about my family situation and what I'm doing for a living? We spoke for about two minutes, ran out of anything to say, and stood in silence for the rest of the journey. The whole time I just wanted to say to him, dude, you know this is your fault, right? We could have just nodded at each other and carried on with our day. Here's my solution to harassment. Nobody is allowed to approach anyone, but everyone has a set of cards with their interests and values on them and a profile photo. It has to be just a headshot. It can't be some photo of you with an African kid by a well to show that you're a humanitarian. If you see a girl or a guy you like, you can ask if you can give them a card and then you leave them alone. You don't talk. You don't ask if you can circumvent the process and chat to them now. You don't mention the hot dog they're eating. You leave them alone. If and when they're ready, they can contact you and ask you why you think it's okay to wear a trench coat indoors. That's the solution. I'm not blaming hip-hop for my inability to pull, but I don't think it helped. There never seemed to be any girls at hip-hop gigs. I mean, that's certainly not the case now. And there was something very nerdy and virginal about being an uncool hip-hop fan, particularly back then. I originally started listening to Public Enemy and then moved on to NWA, Ice Cube and Ice-T before broadening my taste of stuff like De La Soul and the whole Native Tongues Collective. Despite my occasional West Coast dalliances, I was basically an East Coast hip-hop fan and I got pathetically into it. I would dress like a rapper, walk like a rapper and even started writing rhymes at school with a mate. It was all pretty embarrassing. I would say probably the highlight in terms of cringe was when I stole a VW badge and started wearing on a shoelace around my neck. I kept writing rhymes and having occasional battles with one of the other hip-hop heads from school. I think even we knew it was shit, but we couldn't get enough of it. I loved everything about it, collecting the tapes, the dancing, the culture. I used to read and write into Hip Hop Connection magazine religiously. My most embarrassing letter, which ended up getting published, was all about how awful Snoop and Dre were and how much I preferred Tim Dog, a symptom of my East Coast obsession getting the better of me. My own rap career started when I was at uni, where I created my stage persona, Ranga. I'd written some lyrics and was desperate to link up with a DJ and start chatting over his mixes. I hooked up with a couple of other guys, Semi and Avin, and we started performing at clubs with a DJ we'd met called Yatin. Truthfully, we were awful. Yatin was good, but we were surplus to requirements. If he was playing a rap record, who the hell wanted to hear us rapping? We were just creating a racket, shouting things like, Yatin in the place with Ranga and Semi, yes! It was so bad. But it was fun to be going to clubs and working towards something, however hopeless. We once tried to record some stuff, but we were too lazy to write lyrics, so it was just us repeating the same raps over and over on different tracks. One night, we even got attacked, although I'm placing the blame for that firmly at Yatin's door. We were at a small club in Kingston, and Yatin decided to play a track by Brown Nubian, the beginning of which is a sample of the Muslim call to prayer. He can't claim to be surprised by this, as the track is called Allahu Akbar. Within seconds of the track starting, 
the booth was surrounded by Muslims, angry that we had played a call to prayer in a place where drink was served and all sorts of naughtiness was going on. I can't remember what calmed them down, but based on how the night had gone, I imagine we just promised to stop emceeing. I remember some of the lyrics I used to drop. Here's a little sample. The basic way in which I bring that type of mayhem will only become an apparent to an MC when I slay him. Stay trim, my verbals ain't flabby, but these others come with words like your girl, they're fucking shabby. I leave mic, devices disassembled, you must worship when I spit, my lyric is my temple. Most of these MCs come like Bee Gees when they test my vibe, because while my object's victory, the object is just staying alive. Strive with combinations of chatter to break these rappers down to dominations of natter. I'm like Rubik's Cube, these stupid dudes will never comprehend my complexity relies on my ability to transcend your basic metaphor. In semaphore, I'm incredible. I'm extra tasty with it, while these others are inedible. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. How the hell do you test somebody's vibe? And I must have been on the weed when I decided that my complexity relied on my ability to transcend. I was essentially just shitting out a thesaurus. To be fair, I am incredible in semaphore. I once went to a hip-hop and R&B night at my brother's girlfriend's uni. It was a strange evening because Pop Idol was really huge and the whole bar had been set up with the final being shown on the big screen. The bar was half full of people desperate to know the results of the final and half full of people dressed up for an R&B hip-hop night waiting for it to finish. I was slightly older, which I always felt gave you an edge with girls at those nights, although obviously it wasn't enough to help me. There's a point at which being older works to your advantage and another at which you've peaked, and it's sad that you're still out cutting loose with a much younger crowd. I used to go to clubs a lot, and these weird older guys would turn up. Most of them looked like somebody's uncle. I couldn't work out why they continued to come out unless they really got off on making people feel slightly uncomfortable. Then I found myself out one night, glancing in a mirror and coming to the realisation that I now look like one of the creepy guys. I remember saying it into the mirror of one of the club toilets, the site of many of my epiphanies, or what some might call breakdowns. Every so often, I'll be drunk in a toilet, washing my hands, and catch myself in the mirror, then just monologue to myself about what an idiot I am. You're drunk, mate. Everyone knows it. Why do you have to get so drunk? You're pathetic. They're not your real friends out there, you know. They think you're an idiot too. And you're fat. And your eyes so messed up you can't even look at yourself in the mirror properly. You're a joke, mate. And then I head back to the bar to get more drinks. To be fair, drunk me has a valid point about the eye. It's essentially my personal version of a breathalyzer. It becomes more off-centre and droopy the more drunk I get. If it shuts completely, it's time to get my stomach pumped. Anyway, one day I went to a nightclub toilet and Mira Romish and I decided we couldn't go clubbing anymore. The Pop Idol final finished and the night started properly. The DJ started playing banger after banger and the crowd were going nuts. Then the DJ got on the mic and asked if there's anyone who could rap. Hello pricks, here is Ranga's opportunity to shine. Immediately and drunkenly, as I was really happy about Will Young winning Pop Idol, I stepped up to the booth and volunteered my services. The DJ handed me the mic and I began to spit pure fire. Oh my God, mate, it was incredible. I was doing written verses and these were getting eight mile style cheers from the crowd and then I ran out of written stuff so I started freestyling and it went up a notch. The crowd were going nuts. It was nearly impossible for me to really focus on the rapping as I was so distracted by the thought of how much sex I was going to be having as a direct result of this performance. The only decision left to make was not to overstay my welcome. I dropped my final bar to the crowd going wild. I handed the microphone to the DJ who hugged me in admiration and then I tripped and fell all the way down the stairs from the DJ booth in full view of everyone. The one thing I'm grateful for is that the DJ didn't stop the track. I stood up immediately 
and realised two things. One, I'd quite badly injured my ankle. And two, I couldn't let anyone know that I'd injured my ankle. I spent the rest of the night smiling and dancing while trying not to cry and telling everyone who asked that the fall hadn't hurt as badly as it looked. I felt like Madonna. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I've had weird experiences at nightclubs. I once went with a girlfriend and her mates to Clapham Grand for a 70s night and was accosted by the lollipop dude in the toilets. I've always felt these guys don't get the recognition they deserve. I've lost count of the number of nights they've helped me remember no splash, no gash. That particular guy took a real shine to me because I was the only other person of colour he had encountered the whole night. He started telling me how excited he was to see me and that brothers needed to stick together. He even refused to take any money from me, even though I'd freshened up for the Panani. It breaks my heart that so many of our younger generation no longer bother to do that. And so it was all night. Every time I went in there, he gave me everything for free. It felt great to have a toilet ally. The final time I went in, I found all of the lollipops and aftershaves out, but my new BFF was nowhere to be seen. I stood in front of the stuff and decided to wash my hands and leave when I heard my friend say, help yourself to whatever you need, my brother. I looked around to see where he was and was horrified to see he was in one of the cubicles sitting on the toilet with his pants down and with the door wide open so he could keep an eye on the stuff. He asked me about my night. I wanted to tell him it had been going great until social etiquette had forced me to engage in a conversation with a man who was taking a shit. But I decided I didn't want to add any more awkwardness to my new friendship. It was also ridiculously easy to get into fights in those clubs. I remember being at Rainforest Cafe one night, standing in the corner of the bar while my mates bought drinks. It seems unusual that everyone except one person would go to buy drinks and I'm now thinking that I may have been the group outcast, but that's something for me to discuss with my counsellor. I was standing on my own and a group of lads barged past me in a manner you had to get used to at those nights. There's no point picking people up on it because you just get started on. One guy at the back, though, actively shoved me as he walked past. He turned around, gave me a look, then gestured to his phone. I looked at it as he started to write a text message, which I realised was for me to read. He typed, I am deaf, but don't let that make you think that you can mess me about. I will fuck you up. Something like that. I wasn't sure of the etiquette. Was I supposed to read the message and give him a thumbs up to confirm he didn't have to fuck me up? Was I supposed to type a response into his phone? As it turned out, it didn't matter because what he decided to do was scream into my face like a lunatic. 
I wasn't sure how to respond, and then all of his friends came running over. I thought I was going to get a genuine pasting. In fact, they'd come to usher him away and explain to me that he was deaf. I told them it was fine and that in future he could probably save that text message as a template to avoid having to type it out each time. Growing up on a council estate made this sort of insane situation feel quite familiar. When I was 16, I went to see a mate and he told me that he had beef with some bloke on the next road. I can't remember what the issue was, but I'm sure it was incredibly important. Maybe he'd taped over his Shabaranks album or something. Anyway, he asked me if I would back him up as he confronted the guy. Backing someone up is something I've done a lot of in my time. Essentially, it means standing behind them and looking hard while inside you cry and hope to God a fight doesn't actually break out. Of course, I agreed. There was no option, really, but I was also exceptionally good at standing behind someone, providing a fight didn't actually take place, in which case my only real use would have been to provide a human shield. I got my game face on and we both walked to where this guy was hanging out. He was bigger than either of us, and I was pretty sure he could take both of us, so I was really hoping this didn't kick off. My friends started asking this guy why he'd been bad-mouthing him, and the guy was denying it. Pretty standard stuff for a council estate standoff in Crawley. The thing that worried me, though, was that the guy didn't seem to be backing down, and neither did my mate, which meant there was a good chance this would turn into an actual fight. I tried to counteract this by increasing my level of backing up, which meant looking annoyed at what was being said, throwing my arms up and occasionally spitting. This did nothing. Then my friend opened his jacket and pulled out what can only be described as a small sword. There were two things to process here. First, this had escalated the situation. And second, this was a pretty damning indictment of my backing up abilities. It seemed to have the desired effect. The other guy immediately freaked out and went to run away. Whereupon my mate started chasing him, shouting things like, That's it, run away you pussy! as if running away from a teenager with a sword was anything other than incredibly sensible. If anything, we should have been shouting, that's it, follow basic survival instinct, you non-suicidal idiot. We chased the bloke off and my mate decided to take the sword back to his house before we continued with our day, which I concurred was absolutely the best thing to do. We had just returned the sword to his bedroom and were walking along the street talking about how good I'd been at backing him up when a car screeched to a halt next to us. The doors opened and our sword runner and three of his mates got out of the car brandishing golf clubs. We glanced around. There was nowhere to run. We looked at each other as if to say, OK, we're going to get beaten up with golf clubs now. It was very much like the end of Toy Story 3, when they're headed for the furnace, except we didn't hold hands. I was just putting my arm up to protect myself from the first blow when I heard, Oh my God, it's Ramesh! I looked from behind my arms to see that one of the guys who was about to beat the shit out of us was the boyfriend of a mate of mine. I'm sorry, mate, I can't beat up Romesh. This is done. See you later, Rom. The backing up gods had sent me a blessing. I'd gone on to do my master's, the one where I left my exam paper blank, and was preparing to leave my hip-hop dreams behind me when I bumped into an old mate from school as I was waiting for a tube. I knew he'd gone into music production, but he mentioned that he was now doing a lot of hip-hop stuff. We exchanged details and I arranged to go round to his and lay down some lyrics. A few weeks later, I turned up at his place. He was there with a DJ called Doe, and we got ready to put down a track. This was nerve-wracking for me. Although I'd told him I could rap, I hadn't actually done it in front of either of them. There was a good chance they'd be trying not to crack up laughing. They didn't laugh, and I have no idea how good they thought I was, but Doe and I started doing some bits and pieces, and he got me together with another rapper called Worms. There was no plan, no ambition, and... I would argue, 
no desire in any of us to take things further. We would just occasionally meet up, rap a bit, and I'd go home with the tape thinking I was a rapper. A few months later, I saw an ad in Hip Hop Connection looking for battle rappers for something called Battle Scars, essentially an eight-mile-style competition. They were looking for rappers to send in tapes so they could choose entrance for a competition that was taking place at Scala in King's Cross. I recorded some rhymes, sent them in, and was selected to compete. I went along with a few mates, unprepared for what I was to be involved in. The gig was mad. It was absolutely heaving with hip-hop fans, and they were all as rowdy as anything. I walked in and was almost immediately crippled with nerves. The first round involved us rapping over a beat we had pre-selected and brought with us. I had burned mine onto a CD, and the disc failed, cutting out just at my killer punchline, which actually helped. I got through. The second round was a simple eight-mile-style battle. You had to take turns to go at each other for 30 seconds each. Then the judges and crowd would decide a winner. It was horrendous. People were doing throat-slit gestures and telling you that you are going to choke as you walked on stage. Luckily, I was up against somebody who just couldn't do it. It was almost as if someone had rigged things in my favour. I delivered 30 seconds of turgid dog shit, and then he, against all odds, managed to serve up something worse. The third round involved a band. You had to give them the elements of the track beatbox style, and they would recreate them for you to rap over. By this stage, I knew I was out of my depth. So my strategy was to have a catchy enough beat that would carry through the lacklustre lyrics. So I basically did the beat to Billie Jean. This, in combination with an opponent who was, again, next level incompetent, meant that I was through to the final. You know when England get knocked out of an early round of the World Cup and then you're watching a team they would have played later in the tournament mullering somebody and you think, Christ, I'm glad we're not playing them. Well, imagine that scenario, except England get through and are obliterated to the extent that they have to leave wearing burkas. That is essentially what happened to me in the final. It was me versus two guys in a battle to the death. They were both excellent and deserved to be there. And as soon as we started, the other two immediately saw there was a runt in the litter. They turned on me to eliminate me as quickly as they possibly could. I cannot tell you how awful it was to feel the crowd smell blood. It was like the Coliseum. I tried to retaliate by dropping the worst freestyle rhyme heard in a while. Here I am spitting bars in the scala. You can't handle the heat of my chicken tikka masala. Fucking hell. I mean, literally, the mildest curry you can get on the whole menu. I was doomed. Talking of tikka masala, my dad used to have a theory that white people got treated better in Indian restaurants. This meant he had a huge chip on his shoulder whenever we went to one. We used to go to an Indian restaurant in Crawley. One night we were in there and my dad was convinced we were hurried to our table while all the white people were getting their butts kissed and their shoes shined. The waiter came over to take our order and my dad said, does this dish come with rice? The waiter replied, yes, it comes with rice, you know. Dad blew up. No, I don't fucking know. If I knew, why the hell would I be asking you? He might have had a point, but his reaction felt disproportionate to the waiter's actions. I also thought we ran the risk of some extra phlegm in the biryani. That still wasn't my most embarrassing experience in an Indian restaurant. That award goes to the time when I was touring with Susie Ruffle, and we used to hit up a curry house after every show. One night we arrived at a restaurant and ordered. I was necking beers and suddenly needed a piss. I went off to have one, then returned to the meal. 
As Susie was talking to me, I suddenly felt a warmth in my genital area. I wasn't sure if I was imagining it, but soon it was a deeply uncomfortable burning. Somehow, I had transferred Jalfrazy spice to my dick. I have since been informed that this is a common complaint known as Chilly Willy. I made my excuses and ran to the toilet. I tackled the issue as best I could, then returned to the table where I had no choice but to explain what happened to Susie, who was partly laughing but mostly appalled at my oversharing. I was ejected from the rap battle after the masala line, the audience really hating me now. My friends walked ahead because the crowd's vitriol was so brutal. I even had guys offering to battle me because they thought it was an easy win. And then, just as I was leaving, I noticed Mike Skinner among them, and my exit from hip-hop was complete. I never rapped again. Seriously, at least. Sadly, every interview I've ever done has involved me being asked to perform some sort of rap, but in the main, I've avoided it. In my version of 8 Mile, Eminem would have gone, actually, it, it turns out you're right, I'm not cut out for this. From that point on, I decided to be a hip-hop consumer only. I've carried on going to gigs, buying the music, and dressing like a prick, though. For a while, I was obsessed with Nas, and in 2005, me, my brother and a mate, managed to get tickets to see him in Brixton. We were buzzing as we went in. Then about 30 minutes into the show, I was slightly separate from the other two when I heard a loud bang. I assumed it was a sound effect or some technical issue, but another couple of bangs made it obvious it was a gun. People were flipping out and running for the exit, screaming. My brother told me his enduring memory of the incident would be me zigzagging across an empty space in the venue, providing a clear target for any gunman requiring one. As we made our way to the doors, Nas came out and said something along the lines of, you think a gun is going to stop me? The remaining crowd tried to get into it, but the gunshots had put a bit of a dampener on the whole thing. Nas carried on, then brought out Dizzy Rascal for a bit. I say a bit, Nas never came back. So I guess what he meant was, do you think a gun is going to stop me? Well, yes it is, but not before I put Dizzy Rascal in the line of fire. One of the things that I've been so grateful for is that my comedy career has allowed me to participate in hip-hop in my own way. It all started in Camden by accident. Rob Beckett and I were taking part in the Camden Fringe Festival back in 2011. We were performing in a show run by Rupert Majendi. If you listen to my Hip Hop Save My Life podcast, you will know him as the now legendary Rumaj. But back then, he was the mere mortal Rupert. He ran, and still does, a live comedy company called Not Too Bag. Rupert was also a producer for the BBC and was one of the first people involved in that world to take an interest in working with me. One of the first projects we decided to make was essentially a sketch based around a bit of stand-up I was doing at the time about Fruit Loops breakfast cereal. It was pretty revolutionary stuff. The short essentially involved me delivering my material to the camera with some acted out scenes. We were shooting it at a studio in North London and there was a scene where I went to Kellogg's offices and demanded to know why they didn't sell Fruit Loops in the UK. This was based on a true story. I went to Canada, fell in love with Fruit Loops, then wrote a complaint letter to Kellogg's. That I had the time to do this tells you everything you need to know about my life at that stage. We decided to step out of the studio and pretend one of the offices on the site was Kellogg's. They set up the cameras and I started banging on the door of the empty office, demanding answers. I was in full flow when I heard a man scream, what the fuck are you doing? And come sprinting down some stairs nearby. He was carrying a weapon and ran towards me, brandishing it. I'm pretty sure he thought I was trying to break in, but then he saw the cameras and realised what was going on. He already had a lot of adrenaline in his system. What the hell are you doing? 
we're just uh, we're filming something for the BBC. Do you have permission to be shouting and banging on doors? Well, we've just hired one of the studios and we thought it would be okay. It's not fucking okay. Right, you're not allowed to leave until someone at the BBC gives me £2,000. Steve, the security guy, do not let any of these people leave unless I say so. What had initially started as a pleasant afternoon filming some substandard comedy had led to us becoming hostages. We went inside and had a conversation about who was going to speak to the BBC to arrange the money for our release. Rupert phoned up the guy we had booked the studio with. He said, oh, that's Chris. He's a bit like that. A bit like that. That's what you say about somebody who can be a tad grumpy or doesn't like mornings, not a guy who recreates a low-budget version of Die Hard. You'll be delighted to know that we eventually negotiated our release, but sadly, the classic Fruit Loops material never saw the light of day. When Rob and I turned up to the venue in Camden, the plan was for Rob to compare the first part, then bring on the comedians as they showed up. I was due to compare the last section at the end of the night, with a few other comics keeping things running in between. The problem Rob faced was that the bar was empty. When he asked Rupert what we should do, Rupert suggested starting and people would come in, which is in the top five of the shittest ideas I've ever heard. Rob rightly pointed out that doing crowd work to an empty room might look absolutely mental. When I came back later that night to do my stint, I was faced with a very different scene. Liam Williams was hosting and doing a great job, but the crowd was descending into drunken madness. They were shouting over acts and starting chants. It was like doing comedy to a group of people who had come to watch the football. I walked up to Rupert and asked him what the hell we were going to do. He said we needed to do a spot of crowd control, so we decided to do a hip-hop comedy set. This involved me going up and starting jokes with a punchline that was a hip-hop tune title and playing it. For example... I was working at a shop and I was going through the complaint box. There were nearly a hundred. A customer walked in and said, please could you feed my dog? She's pregnant. And I said, I feel bad for you, son. I've got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one. Then we'd play the song. Now I've typed it out, it seems awful. But on the night, it worked perfectly. That was the beginning of Rupert and me trying to combine comedy with hip-hop. We finally settled on a podcast. Hip-hop saved my life. We didn't have any aspirations for it at all. We just knew loads of comics who liked hip-hop, so we thought we'd chat to them about it and that a format would emerge. Our first guest was Mark Smith, who is obsessed. We met at Rupert's office, recorded the podcast on a laptop and put it out, and got literally zero feedback. That may have been why we didn't put out another episode for about eight months, but once we started getting into a rhythm, we put them out more regularly, and I've been amazed by the response. What this meant, though, was that because the podcast was getting listeners, hip-hop artists wanted to come on and promote their music. This was mind-blowing for me, and I got so bloody excited when Charlie Tuna from Jurassic 5 joined us for an episode. The only problem being that whenever I'm around people I really admire, I lose my head. The biggest triumph of all of this is that I feel like I'm participating in hip-hop in my own small way without shitting on the culture by rapping terribly. It's been very cathartic. Okay, that was it. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you liked what you heard but didn't like the way it was delivered well you can deliver it in your own voice by buying the hardback book now from all good bookstores uh and obviously online um or you can download the audiobook read by me like that in fact that was taken directly from me i'm not gonna fucking read it again just for the purposes of this but anyway hope you enjoyed it see you later bye
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.